This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 20 A Catastrophe. We lay three days in New Orleans, but the captain did not succeed in finding another pilot, so he proposed that I should stand a daylight watch and leave the night watches to George Ealer. But I was afraid. I had never stood a watch of any sort by myself, and I believed I should be sure to get into trouble in the head of some chute, or ground the boat in a near cut through some bar or other. Brown remained in his place, but he would not travel with me. So the captain gave me an order on the captain of the A.T. Lacey for a passage to St. Louis, and said he would find a new pilot there, and my steersman's berth could then be resumed. The Lacey was to leave a couple of days after the Pennsylvania. The night before the Pennsylvania left, Henry and I sat chatting on a freight pile on the levee till midnight. The subject of the chat mainly was one which I think we had not exploited before, steamboat disasters. One was then on its way to us, little as we suspected it. The water which was to make the steam which should cause it was washing past some point fifteen hundred miles up the river while we talked, but it would arrive at the right time and the right place. We doubted if persons not clothed with authority were of much use in cases of disaster and attendant panic. Still they might be of some use, so we decided that if a disaster ever fell within our experience, we would at least stick to the boat, and give such minor service as chance might throw in the way. Henry remembered this afterward, when the disaster came, and acted accordingly. The Lacey started up the river two days behind the Pennsylvania. We touched at Greenville, Mississippi, a couple of days out, and somebody shouted, "'The Pennsylvania is blown up at Ship Island, and a hundred and fifty lives lost!' At Napoleon, Arkansas, the same evening, we got an extra, issued by a Memphis paper, which gave some particulars. It mentioned my brother, and said he was not hurt. Further up the river we got a later extra. My brother was again mentioned, but this time as being hurt beyond help. We did not get full details of the catastrophe until we reached Memphis. This is the sorrowful story. It was six o'clock on a hot summer morning. The Pennsylvania was creeping along north of Ship Island, about sixty miles below Memphis, on a half-head of steam, towing a wood-flat which was fast being emptied. George Ealer was in the pilot-house alone, I think. The second engineer and a striker had the watch in the engine-room. The second mate had the watch on deck. George Black, Mr. Wood, and my brother, clerks, were asleep, as were also Brown and the head engineer, the carpenter, the chief mate, and one striker. Captain Kleinfelter was in the barber's chair, and the barber was preparing to shave him. There were a good many cabin passengers aboard, and three or four hundred deck passengers, so it was said at the time, and not very many of them were astir. The wood being nearly all out of the flat now, Ealer rang to come ahead full steam, and the next moment four of the eight boilers exploded with a thunderous crash, and the whole forward third of the boat was hoisted toward the sky. The main part of the mass, with the chimneys, dropped upon the boat again, a mountain of riddled and chaotic rubbish, and then, after a while, a fire broke out. Many people were flung to considerable distances, and fell in the river. Among these were Mr. Wood and my brother and the carpenter. The carpenter was still stretched upon his mattress when he struck the water seventy-five feet from the boat. 
Brown, the pilot, and George Black, chief clerk, were never seen or heard of after the explosion. The barber's chair, with Captain Kleinfelter in it, and unhurt, was left with its back overhanging vacancy. Everything forward of it, floor and all, had disappeared, and the stupefied barber, who was also unhurt, stood with one toe projecting over space, still stirring his lather unconsciously and saying not a word. When George Ealer saw the chimneys plunging aloft in front of him, he knew what the matter was, so he muffled his face in the lapels of his coat, and pressed both hands there tightly to keep this protection in its place, so that no steam could get to his nose or mouth. He had ample time to attend to these details while he was going up and returning. He presently landed on top of the unexploded boilers, forty feet below the former pilot-house, accompanied by his wheel and a rain of other stuff and enveloped in a cloud of scalding steam. All of the many who breathed that steam died, none escaped. But Ealer breathed none of it. He made his way to the free air as quickly as he could, and when the steam cleared away he returned and climbed up on the boilers again, and patiently hunted out each and every one of his chessmen and the several joints of his flute. By this time the fire was beginning to threaten. Shrieks and groans filled the air. A great many persons had been scalded, a great many crippled. The explosion had driven an iron crowbar through one man's body. I think they said he was a priest. He did not die at once, and his sufferings were very dreadful. A young French naval cadet of fifteen, son of a French admiral, was fearfully scalded, but bore his tortures manfully. Both mates were badly scalded, but they stood to their posts nevertheless. They drew the wood-boat aft and they and the captain fought back the frantic herd of frightened immigrants till the wounded could be brought there and placed in safety first. When Mr. Wood and Henry fell in the water, they struck out for shore, which was only a few hundred yards away. But Henry presently said he believed he was not hurt. What an unaccountable error! And therefore would swim back to the boat and help save the wounded. So they parted, and Henry returned. By this time the fire was making fierce headway, and several persons who were imprisoned under the ruins were begging piteously for help. All efforts to conquer the fire proved fruitless, so the buckets were presently thrown aside and the officers fell to with axes and tried to cut the prisoners out. A striker was one of the captives. He said he was not injured, but could not free himself, and when he saw that the fire was likely to drive away the workers, he begged that someone would shoot him, and thus save him from the more dreadful death. The fire did drive the axe-men away, and they had to listen, helpless, to this poor fellow's supplications, till the flames ended his miseries. The fire drove all into the wood-flat that could be accommodated there. It was cut adrift then, and it and the burning steamer floated down the river toward Ship Island. They moored the flat at the head of the island, and there, unsheltered from the blazing sun, the half-naked occupants had to remain without food or stimulants or help for their hurts during the rest of the day. A steamer came along, finally, and carried the unfortunates to Memphis, and there the most lavish assistance was at once forthcoming. By this time Henry was insensible. The physicians examined his injuries and saw that they were fatal, and naturally turned their main attention to patients who could be saved. Forty of the wounded were placed upon pallets on the floor of a great public hall, and among these was Henry. There the ladies of Memphis came every day with flowers, fruits, and dainties and delicacies of all kinds, and there they remained and nursed the wounded. 
All the physicians stood watches there, and all the medical students, and the rest of the town furnished money, or whatever else was wanted. And Memphis knew how to do all these things well, for many a disaster like the Pennsylvania's had happened near her doors, and she was experienced, above all other cities on the river, in the gracious office of the Good Samaritan. The sight I saw when I entered that large hall was new and strange to me. Two long rows of prostrate forms, more than forty in all, and every face and head a shapeless wad of loose raw cotton. It was a gruesome spectacle. I watched there six days and nights, and a very melancholy experience it was. There was one daily incident which was peculiarly depressing. This was the removal of the doomed to a chamber apart. It was done in order that the morale of the other patients might not be injuriously affected by seeing one of their number in the death agony. The fated one was always carried out with as little stir as possible, and the stretcher was always hidden from sight by a wall of assistance. But no matter, everybody knew what that cluster of bent forms with its muffled step and its slow movement meant, and all eyes watched it wistfully, and a shudder went abreast of it like a wave. I saw many poor fellows removed to the death-room, and saw them no more afterward. But I saw our chief mate carried thither more than once. His hurts were frightful, especially his scalds. He was clothed in linseed oil and raw cotton to his waist, and resembled nothing human. He was often out of his mind, and then his pains would make him rave and shout, and sometimes shriek. Then, after a period of numb exhaustion, his disordered imagination would suddenly transform the great apartment into a forecastle, and the hurrying throng of nurses into the crew, and he would come to a sitting posture and shout, "'Hump yourselves! Hump yourselves, you petrifactions! Snail-bellies! Pall-bearers! Going to be all day getting that hatful of freight out?' and supplement this explosion with a firmament-obliterating eruption or profanity which nothing could stay or stop till his crater was empty. And now and then, while these frenzies possessed him, he would tear off handfuls of the cotton and expose his cooked flesh to view. It was horrible. It was bad for the others, of course, this noise and these exhibitions. So the doctors tried to give him morphine to quiet him. But in his mind, or out of it, he would not take it. He said his wife had been killed by that treacherous drug, and he would die before he would take it. He suspected that the doctors were concealing it in his ordinary medicines and in his water so he ceased from putting either to his lips. Once, when he had been without water during two sweltering days, he took the dipper in his hand, and the sight of the limpid fluid and the misery of his thirst tempted him almost beyond his strength. But he mastered himself and threw it away, and after that he allowed no more to be brought near him. Three times I saw him carried to the death-room, insensible and supposed to be dying, but each time he revived cursed his attendants, and demanded to be taken back. He lived to be mate of a steamboat again. But he was the only one who went to the death-room and returned alive. Dr. Peyton, a principal physician, and rich in all the attributes that go to constitute high and flawless character, did all that educated judgment and trained skill could do for Henry. But, as the newspapers had said in the beginning, his hurts were past help. On the evening of the sixth day his wandering mind busied itself with matters far away, and his nerveless fingers picked at his coverlet. His hour had struck. We bore him to the death-room, poor boy. End of chapter 20